Okay, well, I just do this. So this is the music of Antonio Vivaldi, a Baroque, um, actually a priest, but better known for his music and his uh, grasp of musical form. He was a great influence on the other Baroque composers like Bach and Handel. A lot of their music shows a Vivaldi influence, especially in, in fast movements. This has, though, that kind of spring in its step, rhythmically, which I associate with um, this season that we're uh, dealing with and li living in. Spring, I gather, I'm no expert in these things, but uh, is an old word, certainly back to medieval times, possibly Dutch-German origin, um, associated with water springing up, hence springs. But of course it's also associated in our minds with lots of other things, seasonal, like lambs springing. I'm sure you've seen that. Um, we used to see it in Wales a lot. They just leap up in the air like a vertical takeoff plane. Um, and children run and jump. New life tends to run and jump. And new life is particularly celebrated at this time. Growth coming out of a season of uh, shutting down with plants and leaves and so on. I think this gentleman, along with several others here, um, has caught that mood. I don't know what he's trying to represent here. It's a tenderness of some kind. extended lute playing a uh, kind of continuo in the background. Violin solos are the feature of this. Characteristics of this kind of music, it seems to me, uh, in my experience working with it, especially for special occasions like weddings and funerals, some music works for all occasions. Uh, it seems to me that could be applied. It has the, it has the merit of being applicable in uh, many situations um, where it would simply fit because it's a positive musical idiom. Of course, there's also the vocal and Mr. Shakespeare had some things to say about spring. So Thomas Morley, we've stepped back a century, well, a century and a half. Again, the lute is the, the given accompaniment. So what I'm going to do is just cover some um, non-spiritual expressions, often by Christians, um, of the season of spring, and then move into some more particular pieces for the period. So this kind of music would be heard in the merchant's house or a court or anybody, anywhere else where they actually had the room and the instruments to make this kind of music. Susan, my wife, wishes I would sit down and do this, <laughs> sing these songs to her. <laughs> Trouble is, I can't sing that high. So birds singing, things blooming, coming to flower. 
Um, some composers have uh, taken the, the concept of the seasons into their formal structures. Uh, this next piece um, by Beethoven is the Spring Sonata, just a segment of it, uh, for violin and piano. And it's an early work, and the title may have been given later, but with good reason. It too has this sunny aspect. How has this come about in music? Um, I think the first thing is, is what it isn't. When music cheers or lifts us up, it is not morbid. <laughs> it is not too introspective. It's interesting that in the Baroque and Classical period, that is, think Vivaldi, uh, Bach, Buxtehude, through to Mozart and Haydn, the um, fast movement, the fast tempo dominates. So you have a, an allegro all over the place, particularly in the first movement. Uh, there's usually a middle movement, although that's sometimes a dance form. And then in the classical symphony, and then a, a rondo, which is always of a fast nature. There's a slow movement, often very beautiful, but it's only part of the picture. As <coughs> classical music moves through the centuries, into the 19th especially, you can just see it in terms of the old LPs. <laughs> they, you start with two Beethoven symphonies on one LP, number one and number two. Number three requires one LP, both sides. Number four, well, four and five you can squeeze onto one LP, but by the time we start hitting the Ninth Symphony, you need two LPs just to hold that symphony. Things are getting bigger and expanding. The orchestra is getting bigger and expanding. Forms are enlarging. And uh, the, one of the things that enlarges significantly is the slow tempo, not so much in Beethoven, but to some extent. Um, so by the time you're, you, you're hitting the late 19th century, there's a tendency for slow movements to rule the roost. Allegros and moderato are, are, are there, but they don't abound to the same extent. People working, I gather, with people um, who require mental and emotional stabilizing um, and use music in therapy favor that idiom of major keys, which is another feature, um, major keys and upbeat, if you will, tempi. I must say, I love Brahms, and I'm not picking on him, but uh, I sometimes get drawn down by it. <laughs> um, in a good way, a thoughtful way, but it's um, fascinating then to see how people have let spring influence their composition. Here's Beethoven's violin. And we'll be in a minute. There's a lift to the main melody, rising up. Notice a conversation going on, it's dialogue. The accompanist isn't just going um papa, um papa, which is, does tend to be a 19th century de device. He's talking, it happens to be a he, and she is replying, or she's accompanying at the moment. The roles are reversed. Conversation. It comes together. Now he's accompanying on the piano. I happen to know it's a he and a she. The violinist, I can't remember, pronounce her name properly, is, I should know it from memory, um, Kyung Wa Chung as a soloist. So here again, you can, it's like a chatter going back and forth. But this would be good music to start the day off while they're having breakfast and burning the toast.
But you won't. It's hard to find this mood in the music that we run into out there, and alas, in most of our churches. It's interesting. I, if you want to hear this kind of music before any kind of religious service, you would probably need to go to the Unitarian Church. Which, no, they've long had a, a long-standing tradition of good music to adorn their, their liturgy. I um, can't remember the name of the pianist it anchored around. He's dead now, but it's been going on for decades. They go there expecting something like this. Now, why? Part of course is resources, but um, <coughs> back to the music itself, we have this filigree rising pattern all over the place. Of course it comes down again, but the essential character is up. Beautifully played. Um, a number of composers of varying uh, degrees of belief or non-belief have uh, tackled good old spring. I wish I could have included them all, but there isn't room. Benjamin Britten, for instance, has a remarkable conclusion to his spring symphony. Um, but the texts are not very helpful. It's, but hilariously, at the end, he's trying to depict... Uh, Bacchanalian scene, really, in a, in a in a rural setting, and then he imposes a boys' choir singing "Summer Is a Coming In" over the top. It's quite a remarkable effect as they come coming on the left channel. But uh, people like that have um, tackled it. Um, the only per oh, there's one of two people here who um, I think possibly have no particular spiritual axe to grind. Um, one of them is Aaron Copeland, and this is his Appalachian Spring. Mm -hmm. And the thing that fascinates me, this American composer, very, very fine musician, um, but I don't think by any means a believer, and I believe politically uh, strong, I think he came under uh, investigation during the McCarthy era. Um, but forget that, it's his beautiful writing and his capturing of a kind of, I don't know how to put it, <clears throat> it's a, like naive painting. Um, it's clear and it's modal, but it has folk song elements built into it. But the overall thing that fascinates me insofar as we all are made in the image of God and some of the things we do are either inevitable or fascinating, they all, there's this, they're obviously intrigued by this winter moving into this hopeful phase of growth, restoration, and um, a new life. So the music, not just him, as we'll see, but the music here begins, and cutting into the work, because it's long, um, setting a kind of very thoughtful stage before the music takes... This, that's not part of the recording. <laughs> so if you can imagine a kind of northeastern American or even midwestern landscape, Appalachian or Appalachian, Appalachian, as we were told when we lived down there, it should be spring. This is Leonard Slatkin conducting the Detroit Symphony. This is music that says, slow down, think, listen, reflect. So spring is beginning, you could almost see it in a film score with 
leaves opening. So the whole score starts to come to life. Um, got cuckoos in there. And of course, dance. Rhythmically complex for the players, this gives us kind of lurch to the. So, have a barn dance in element in there. I'd rather have this in my dentist's surgery than what I usually get. <laughs> I love Copeland's music. It's, it's very fresh, uh, no-nonsense music. Uh, but it, it does, I think, I, you'd agree, it cheers you up. Um, a bit of that pumped into a hospital wouldn't do any harm. Um, now, it's not all good news, and even when a... Uh, even when a definitely Christian composer um, decides that, yes, okay, but there's a dark side to spring as well. As we look back in uh, over a very long expanse of history, we see that it's also in pagan culture has been a time, it is, and has been a time of um, darker things. And way back, and perhaps still in some places, uh, uh, terrible sacrifices and deeds. And that Igor Stravinsky captured with his Rite of Spring, which was uh, produced in 1912 as a ballet in Paris and caused a riot, though not so much because of the music, which is different, was very different for the day, um, but because apparently the necessary dress of the dancers was quite provocative especially in this particular dance of, sac of the sacrifice, the sacrifice dance. Um, <clears throat> the whole thing, the whole action is, of course, to, is uh, obscene, but it's very brilliantly scored by Stravinsky. It's a huge score, just masses of extra percussion. It's actually called a concerto for percussion, tongue-in-cheek. Um, all kinds of extra instruments, alto flutes, um, uh, E-flat clarinets, uh, expanded sections, extra brass players, just a huge uh, complex and a very difficult work to conduct. Um, it's looked at by musicologists with interest in that you can't, you can do now, but it, it marked the end of launching these huge works with big, big orchestras. You could just do it a drop of a hat because you didn't have to pay very much. <laughs> After the First World War and the economic decline, the picture changes very much. And this is the last of Stravinsky's great big works. After that, he goes into chamber music mode. So it would be a bit like the VSO closing down, and you're left with, if it still existed, 
the CBC Orchestra, half the size, and therefore you score accordingly. Um, <clears throat> anyway, it's the last of three of his great ballets, that is The Firebird and Petrushka, and then this in 1912, are all quite close together. It's brilliant. The man must have had an animal ear to compose this piece. Anyway, here we go. Human sacrifice about to happen. And at the very end, it's quite clear what's happened to the poor victim. The rhythmic, rhythmic uh, pattern is very demanding. I've got to count like mad. music got cut as well <laughs> as the victim um, incredible piece um, and of course it's become a, a giant in the repertoire of 20th century music that Stravinsky was a Christian, his um, settings of various liturgical texts um, are uh, backed up with real commitment to the God they're uh, praising Worshipping. An interesting figure. Very interesting. Back to the Copeland, I spoke about this uh, coming out of, we want to celebrate, let's say, Easter. But we're not going to go right in to the Easter eggs and the, yeah! We're going to remind ourselves of how things came to this pass. And as with Copeland, uh, um, in a entirely different context, saying here is the season, uh, things have been closed down somewhat, they've been muted somewhat, and now it opens up and we're going to have a party. Bach, in his Christlag in Todesbanden, uh, Christ Lay in Death's Bands, Cantata, does the same thing. He paints, he, the text actually goes like this, and he paints the, a, a mood wherein our Lord is indeed in that dreadful Good Friday context. Christ lay enshrouded by death, this is the English obviously, shrouded in, 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 uh, by death, enshrouded um, 
I'm just trying to follow it through, because it's repeated a lot. From mortal sins to save us. He is again arisen, and then the music starts to change, just like it did in the Copeland. Um, and he's again risen, and life he gave us. So here is an early cantata of Bach, the first movement, and there's a symphonia which sets the mood I spoke of, and then you'll hear the change of mood, ending with an, an alleluia which goes at top speed. This doesn't sound like Easter. If you walked in on Easter Day, you wouldn't expect this, would you? Yet it is designated an Easter cantata. So it's a kind of, this was a situation, but this is the now. Now when the choir comes in, Bach uses this kind of, I just think of it as a crowd technique. It's not just one voice saying something, it's several voices saying it, usually following each other like that dialogue or conversation we noted in the, in the Beethoven violin sonata. But over the top of it all is the sopranos, usually boys, singing the chorale or hymn, Lutheran hymn, for Christ lay in death spans. Here they go. So the scene is being set. The hymn tune is moving very slowly over the top. Altos, tenors, and basses are working hard. A lot of notes. And the violins. In the bass line, there's already a hint of a dance. So. Life he gave to us. That's what they're singing right now. Brachas Leben. So the chorale on top has worked itself out. So there's a couple of measures of instrumental music, and then the mood changes to. So let us now. Be joyful. It's almost laughter. Back comes the chorale. Again, those rising figures that we saw in the spring sonata of Beethoven. And now the tenors have the chorale in uh, diminuend, uh, diminished. Let's magnify him th with thankfulness, all singing, hallelujah.
singing und singen Alleluia, Alleluia. Then, so now we've got excitement as well, enthusiasm and excitement, and celebration. find that so uplifting yeah. <laughs> it's incredible music and the use of various motifs associated because there was a whole language of motifs and, Id and idioms associated with uh, scriptural meaning it wasn't just Bach it was in the culture Telemann used it others but Bach supremely uh, rising figures for Easter music can't go up all the time but it, the, the, the predominant features of a motivic upward direction. At Advent and Lent tended to go the other way, coming down. Um, depended a bit on the chorale melody itself. But then there are these figures of figures of assurance. That's a figure used in Wir glauben all in Einen Gott. Believe in all, all in one God. And it's, um, it's a walking motif in the bass. Um, and yet a feature of the piece. In this case, we've got these, these agitated motifs conveying excitement and, um, and these exchanges between the different voices, which just creates a crowd dynamic of ascent and excitement. Bach is my favorite. Here's Bach again. indeed may safely graze under the watchful eye of a good shepherd and yet this is not a specifically Christian work this is a secular cantata um, celebrating the hunt <laughs> it was written for his uh, um, I forget which aristocrat I'll look it up in a minute but it does double service as so often in Bach. Okay, it wasn't intended as a Christian text, but it works as a Christian setting. Once again, there's a universality of application. This works well playing for a funeral, or for a wedding, or for a service. Plus this additional layer of uh, realization that it wasn't originally a Christian, Christianly targeted. It wasn't unchristianly targeted, but. conflicting now with the... <laughs> um, uh, this is just a little sideline, um, just light relief. Percy Granger, the eccentric Australian composer, <laughs> wrote 
it's a spoof on that, and which originally I was, I was very offended. I thought, how dare you do that to a Christian piece? But of course, we just, I discovered it's not. It's a secular piece, so he's in his rights. It's really very funny, um, in a way. And this is what it sounds like. It's called Blythe Bells. All kinds of... Um, particularly things in there, celeste and uh, small metallies, piano of course. I think it's a harmonium, he loved the harmonium. It's a very beautiful spoof, but I think it is a send-up. the whole kitchen going now. There's a harp. So this is a very good illustration of what was, um, of how this <laughs> ties into evolution. Many of the professors I had at the Royal College of Music taught that music evolved away from the Baroque period through the classical period, all given due respect, but it was evolving. And you did things like this to the works of the 18th, 17th, 18th centuries um, because it was better. Better to do is more interesting. There's more going on. <laughs> it kind of misses the point. Um, so you end up as a musician often... Uh, accompanying um, Bach arias or Scarlatti pieces, and you think you're playing a Rachmaninoff piano concerto. They're thickened, and notes are added, and chords are changed. Um, people like the organist Virgil Fox were very good at doing that kind of thing. You took what the master had written, but you improved it, because we, we moved beyond that. <laughs> it's a shame. But it's not the end of the world. You just don't talk to them when you see them on the street. <laughs> Percy Granger was so eccentric, he was giving a concert in Australia. It was very hot, and he had about 20 measures rest or something, and he saw an ice cream van outside because the doors were open, it was so hot. He ran down the hall, got an ice cream, ran back and resumed his position at the piano. Now, just like you to listen to the, the, the um, it's time, sheep time. We've had a bit of sheep. Now, this is serious. Um, the lamb, didn't mean to be uh, silly there. The, the lamb text by William Blake, Little Lamb Who Made Thee. You know that, I'm sure, right? Um, time's against us for reading it, I think. Um, I really do think perhaps I should just get on with the music, yeah. Um, so it asks all these questions about the lamb that the poet is <clears throat> purportedly engaging with. And he asks all these questions about it and working out, of course, to the, the sacrificial lamb. Um, here it is, part of it, set by John Taverner, the English recently died contemporary composer who um, <clears throat> was, I think he converted part through part way through his life to the Orthodox Church, written many uh, works, choral mostly, for that denomination. But this is his 
treatment of that Blake text, Little Lamb Who Made Thee. It's very stark. It's very interesting. Jeremy Begbie often gets his classes when he teaches at Regent to, to sing this together. set syllabically or, or there's no Barkian <clears throat> counterpoint uh, with people singing perhaps the same words at different times or even sometimes in some pieces different words at the same time it's very straightforward and plain that and then I wanted you to hear this setting by uh, this young Norwegian composer Kimani Arneson uh, <coughs> just to see what you think of it it's extremely beautiful I think uh, whether it does justice to the text or sentimentalizes it is for you to decide it's interesting though and certainly music that I wouldn't mind hearing at the dentist's surgery and Already he's repeated little, little, little. So we're not going to get that clarity, that kind of monastic feel to the composition. This is sung, sung by an American uh, cantore called Phoenix. So this composer, who I think is remarkable in many ways, is exploring close harmony um, seconds in the intervals which then resolve there's a lot of crunches in there St. Olaf Choir from uh, Nidoros Cathedral in Norway and uh, a lot of young people in it. There are a lot of young voices here. Um,
of parallel movement in the harmony, which makes it fresh. Came a little child, I a child, and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. That's remarkably fine singing. <laughs> Goodness. Um, very moving, I find, anyway. So the, that last segment is, Little Lamb, I'll tell thee. Just I know who made thee. Little Lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, or he calls himself a lamb. Now, we know, as part of our good cheer, that we're anchored in the um, what happened to the Lamb of God. And I'd like to have played a more obvious element from the Messiah, but there isn't time, and I knew it would, there wouldn't be time for that. So instead, I thought you might like to hear, as part of your uh, cheering repertoire, this. He's gone up, he has gone up on high. If you care to play. This is a remarkable Japanese countertenor. <clears throat> so you think it's a woman singing, but it's it's countertenor. performance standards have changed in just a few decades. It's incredible. There are lots of recordings still around with this going at almost half the speed, a much more romanticized. I think this is great. Once again, it catches that Easter cheer, and spring cheer, I meant to say, but Easter, certainly.
is his lower natural voice. the Lord God might dwell among them. These are all very good performances. They catch, I think, precisely the mood required for them to transmit effectively to us <laughs> and to touch our hearts as well as our ears. Here's a very attractive hymn setting that we could uh, adopt in our private meditations. Um, How can I keep from singing? Keep losing things. How can I keep from singing? My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I catch the sweet, though far off hymn, that hails a new creation. Robert Lowry hymn, words and music, I believe. I'm not quite clear about that.
nice original setting arrangement of that hymn tune. So I've tried to, in, to infu- oh, introduce sorry, a menu of cheer for the spring, rooted in what we see with our eyes and senses through God's creation and, and uh, general grace, but also for us with uh, the hope anchored in eternal life, the salvation that's been gained for us by the Lamb, and uh, the, so- <coughs> the song that should be on our lips. Let me let Mr. Bach have the last word from the East Oratorio. In so many ways, this sums it all up. There aren't any words. Thank you very much.